Now Michael caught it all with Karen and welcome to a chat with Karen. I extend a gracious invite to all from near and far, all cultures and races, all colours, all demographics. Tena koto katoa, welcome all. So we are officially halfway through the week. Hope all is going well for everyone. And if not, well, the good news is that it can only get better. Believe me, I've uh, had a bit of a rough week myself. So, yeah. But let's get started and uh, let's break up that week with some life in the martyr. Hello, my name is Dr. Green Thumb. Hello, my name is Okay, so you may have heard me mention uh, lunar gardening before in uh, probably uh, Garden Planet with uh, Selena and myself or in uh, some of my other segments on gardening or life in the mother. But I just really wanted to reflect on that again uh, just to, I think it's a good one to know. I really do. And you'll know by the end of this spiel, so... Here we go. So lunar gardening, gardening by the moon, has been practised as far back as the ancient Egyptians. And it's all to do with the moon's strong gravitational pull and its moonlight. The first two quarters between the new and full moon are called the waxing phase. And this is when the gravitational pull and moonlight is increasing. And then the last two quarters following the full moon are the waning phase of the lunar cycle. So just as gravitational pull controls the ocean tidal flows, it also controls the moisture in the soil and the moisture in the plants, which in turn influences things such as seed germination and plants' growth. Can you believe that up to 35% more water is absorbed by plants during full moon? Astounding, isn't it? Even nutrient intakes vary at different phases of the moon. For instance, at full moon, phosphorus intake increases, while at new moon, potassium intake increases. So I'm going to give you a brief little guide to the lunar cycle planting in the garden. And again, if you have any questions on this, feel free to email me. I've got a few resources there that I can uh, point you towards. And uh, yeah, please do. I'm most happy to answer any questions because it can get a little bit complex, the whole lunar cycle and and gardening in general, actually. It sounds simple, but sometimes it's actually, it's not. There's more to it. Nature makes it look easy. So... During the lunar cycle, the most ideal time to plant is when gravitational pull and moonlight are at their highest, which is the time of the full moon. So for me, that's a kind of easy one to remember because whenever there's a full moon, I kind of, I've got more energy, um, I'm more motivated, I don't know what it why that is exactly but I have found I don't know the science behind it but I have found that other people feel the same my cats definitely do Uh, when there's a full moon I literally do not see them for about a week they are just out and about all the time running around 
who knows what they get up to, but it's an active time for animals too, especially the uh, ones that are nocturnal. So what happens with the plants, back to plants, is when the gravitational pull is strong, the seeds will pull up more water, thereby germinating more quickly. And root crops will grow deeper and stronger because of that pull. It pulls it the, the roots down into the soil more, more stronger. And because most seeds germinate within one to two weeks of you planting them, and transplanted seedlings will generally become more established in one to two weeks, I would suggest planting about a week prior to the gravitational pull reaching its peak in order to get the most out of this particular lunar attribute. So as you sort of see the moon heading towards its fullness, think, oh, right, planting time. A waxing moon means a busy time in the garden. The increasing light coupled with the strengthening gravitational pull creates balanced leaf and root growth. In other words, as much growth above the soil as below. Leafy crops like your spinaches and your um, lettuces and things like that do really well when the moon is waxing as this allows their leaves to take full advantage of the increased light exposure that takes place at this time. Also during this lunar phase, plant out any short-living plants as these use much... um, much more energy over a short period. Once the moon is well into its waning period, it is best to avoid planting altogether. And instead, I advise focusing on other gardening activities such as harvesting, weeding, mulching, composting, fertilising and, hey, even mowing the lawns. Because obviously when you've gone to all the trouble to mow the lawns, You don't want them to grow back as rapidly as possible. You want them to have a very slow growth so it makes sense to do it during the waning moon. So that's a little bit there um, with regards to lunar gardening and I hope that sheds some light. Did you hear the pun there? On that one for you. And as I said, flick me some questions if you uh, have any. Okay, so time with Atua, time with God. Uh, today's topic is all about how your ego keeps you from God. Now, I apologise in advance. This is going to be a long-winded one. And I think I said uh, the last week's show, um, sorry, last month's show was a bit of a long, heavy one with uh, the misanthropy. But anyway, uh, look... You just you need to hear this, so let's just crack into it. Um, I will give you a break in the middle of it, though. It was taken. This uh, research was taken from an article written by Frank Powell in 2019, called Nine Ways Your Ego Prevents You from Experiencing God." So, guess what? I'm going to be talking about nine ways, the nine ways that your ego prevents you or keeps you from God. So in the beginning of the article, Frank asks a big, pretty big question. So why 
aren't more Christians, himself included, more like Jesus? And he puts it down, and that's the whole goal of it. We want to be like that. Um, he just sounds, he's an awesome, yeah, I would love, would have loved to have met him back in, uh, well, what would have been 20 or he died at about 34. So, yeah, it would have been very interesting to be there. Uh, sounds like a really awesome guy. Uh, after all, he is God. So, yeah, it doesn't get any more awesome than that. But anyway, so why aren't we more? We, we seem to be far from that. Well, Frank puts it down to ego, quite simply, or what you might call the flesh. And simply put, the ego is who you think you are. Spiritually speaking, it's your false identity. It's all to do with your attributes such as body image, knowledge, social status, job, accomplishments, and so forth. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that your ego is actually against your spirit. But letting go of the ego lies in favor of something better, and for many, this can be excruciating not to come across as too extreme, but almost like dying. I would guess most people don't let go of their ego unless life throws them a few gut punches. You probably know a few people who suffered unimaginable tragedy and have more peace and love as a result. Frank, the author of this article, in the space of a year resigned from church ministry, mourned the suicide of a family member and also a follower of Jesus, found and quickly lost a dream job, mourned the death of his adopted daughter and he battled illness. He has wrestled, he himself has wrestled with the darkness, questioning everything, his faith, his identity and his calling. At times he even questioned life. He threw a few pity parties he says would rival the one he threw in high school when his parents were out of town. What Frank claims to understand from it all is that his ego was dying. Ultimately, to be led by the Spirit and bear the Spirit's fruits, which is things like love, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control, we must move, we must, in capital letters, move beyond the ego. So, number one, the first reason that uh, your ego prevents you from experiencing God, one, The ego equates all self-knowledge with self-absorption. It's a strange concept, but sadly true. Most people do not truly want to know their true self. Maybe where concerns, self-discovery will inevitably lead to hugging trees and smoking left-handed cigarettes. And it wasn't until Frank's egocentric identity crumbled that he began re-examining the question, who am I? And the answer led him inside. And he found some ugly stuff, an identity composed of success, affirmation and self-ambition. Frank writes, this inward journey has also led me to believe we can't truly know God until we know ourselves. To uncover the spirit, the true self, you must wade through the ego's facades and smoke screens. Until then, the ego controls things, including Christian things. This might explain why we can't love our neighbour as ourselves, as Jesus tells us to do, especially when our neighbour is gay, Muslim or a Democrat. Frank recommends reading a book called The Road Back to You if you are interested in discovering who you really are. 
Number two, the ego is highly competitive and thinks in terms of win-lose. Your ego wants to separate and draw lines to prove itself. And while healthy competition isn't wrong, there are many who compete for superiority. And thinking that makes you better than another person is thinking not from God. Number three, the ego must be correct. Most of Frank's Christian journey, he thought it was his duty to have the right answers. In our effort to commercialise Christianity and mass market the eternal message, many churches have eliminated uncertainty because, quite frankly, it doesn't sell. Although Frank studied hard, when he wasn't really sure, especially when it came to those troubling parts about suffering and eternity, he became less certain and made something up. He writes this, While helping others make sense of God, something in me knew that God's nature and interaction with his creation couldn't be just explained in a few sentences. Now I believe that something was my true self, the spirit. Frank now has complete faith that God has a plan, that God knows what's what. And what he does know is that death won't have the final word. Four, the ego hates change. Frank reckons that if you ask the ego to rank its greatest fears, change would take the top spot. When your ego is in charge, you love comfort in the status quo. It should come as no surprise that Jesus' first sermon is repent. And that was noted in Mark and Matthew, which means turn back or change your mind. The ego can't stand that message. As it is difficult to explain away Jesus' desire for us to change, most egocentric people project the message onto a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend or life circumstances. As long as the ego can find someone else to change, it's off the hook because your ego doesn't actually want you to grow or change. Frank is convinced that the most loving thing your spouse or church can do is patiently challenge you to change and grow. And when you know who you are and when you've uncovered your divine identity, change is no longer so threatening. Number five, the ego minimizes sins of the heart and focuses on sins of the flesh. Because your ego is formed by external stuff, validation, job, education, etc., it focuses on eliminating external sins, the ones you can tangibly measure. So all types of sexual sins, church attendance and the right theology then become the measure of a true Christian. Jesus revealed that external sins are shadows of our true self and we're merely reshuffling the deck until we address what's underneath. Sadly, many people not only accept these sins, greed, pride, hatred, prejudice, prejudice, vanity, but they often celebrate them. And that, to me, is scary. And I'm probably no exception to those. So, yeah, we need to start uh, thinking about these things a little more. Now, I'm going to play a song now. It's called I Wish by Skilo. And... This is pretty much ego-based, so very relevant. Enjoy. Hello? I wish I was a little 
bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat and six point fours. I wish I was like six foot nine so I could get with Leochi. Cause she don't know me, but yo, she's really fine. You know, I see her all the time everywhere I go. And even in my dreams, I can scheme a ways to make her mine. Cause I know she's living fat. Her boyfriend's tall and he plays ball. So how am I gonna compete with that? Cause when it comes to playing basketball, I'm always last to be picked. And then some faces never put it off. So I just lean up on the wall. Or sit up in the bleachers with the rest of the girls who came to watch they man ball. Dad, y'all, I never understood black brother jocks get the fly girls. And me, I get the hood rats. I Tell them scats, kittles, kebabble. Got hit with bottles, but live in a hospital for dark and that mess. I confess it's a shame when you live in a city that's the size of a box and nobody knows your name. Glad I came to my senses like quick, quick, got sick, sick to my stomach. Overcoming my thoughts of me and us together, right? So when I asked her out, she said I wasn't a type. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. I wish I had a rabbit in a hat with a bat. Welcome back. Well done, guys. We're past the halfway mark. 
Okay, number six as to how the ego prevents you from getting close to God. Number six, the ego needs to feel special and is reluctant to give others praise. The ego says, look what I've done, see what I've accomplished, but it is always looking over its shoulder, believing its attention is a finite resource. And the ego resents any person who threatens its platform or reputation. It wasn't until Frank lost a job that he realised how impure his motives were. The ego often stands in place of God's voice. He remembers losing his job and wrestling with the reality of pursuing jobs in other fields. And boy, was he angry with God. As opposed to your ego, your self, true self doesn't attach to accomplishments or titles. You no longer need to be who others want you to be. Climbing mountains and ladders no longer seems important either. Even a small taste of this radical shift, Frank believes, will liberate your heart and thereafter your mind. Number seven, the ego romanticizes the past and idealizes the future. Depending on your position in life, the ego has an unhealthy attachment to either the past or the future. Frank says this, the past, future and present matter. The past reveals a larger narrative of God's work and interaction with his creation. Your experience will be limited without knowledge of the past and your faith will also be limited if you fear the future. Frank is convinced that God comes to people in their present situation and that God is connected to how fully we live in each moment. God leads people forward, not backward, and those who allow the Spirit to lead know this. Number eight. The ego seeks immediate gratification and despises anything difficult. If it's hard or makes you uncomfortable, it's not worth pursuing. So says the ego at least. But if you've lived for any length of time, you know these situations are unavoidable. Rather than wrestling with discomfort or anxiety, the ego, however, seeks a quick fix. The ego believes you can experience God without discomfort. Most Christians like everything about Jesus, except the hard parts like losing friends, being rejected by your own people, and even dying on a cross. Could it be our ego insists there's no meaning in suffering because it knows something exists on the other side, something like God? Could it be that suffering isn't bad but necessary? People have tried to rewire the motherboard for years, believing we can find true love and peace another way. Yet strangely, they remain angry, discriminating and materialistic. And finally, number nine, the ego is deeply sensitive and easily offended. If you want a practical point for inspection, here it is. How easily offended are you? When the ego is in charge, almost any opposing viewpoint feels like a personal attack. Often in response to disagreement, the ego gathers like-minded people to affirm itself. Frank believes that this type of response, especially when it comes to social media, has stunted most Christians' spiritual maturation. And he says this from his own experience. Whenever he received a confronting email or encountered someone who saw the world differently, he would run to social media or call a friend because his ego was in need of pampering. This behaviour stems from the ego's desire to be right and special. Have you ever noticed how Jesus was never offended? The Spirit of God is unoffendable. So guys, to conclude this, ego never fully dies, but know that its authority over our lives can be diminished. The maker places his essence in you. I believe some of you know this, but aren't really sure why you're still battling bitterness, greed, racism, etc. 
Are you tired of looking out there even when you know it doesn't deliver what it promises? For me, catching a glimpse of my true self, even if it's a small one, is a taste of freedom. I no longer need to be anyone other than who I am in God. Praise be and hallelujah. Let's enjoy the moment right now on that note by listening to a song by Dua Lipa called Levitating. Thank you. 
Well, now I really feel like having a boogie and celebrating life and everything that's in it and out of it. So uh, on that note, guys, we're going to sign out now. And it has been an absolute pleasure having you listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Uh, Just remember, keep that ego in check and look after each other. Look after yourself. If you have any questions or thoughts, just email me anytime. No worries. And lastly, but most importantly, don't ever forget that God loves you. listening to Cordero with Karen. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to tune in to Planet FM at 104.6 every fourth Wednesday at 10 past two in the afternoon. Or check it out anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash Cordero with Karen. That's Karen with a Y. Kakite te ano ehoa.